Where did you get this? I didn't. Percy and his little cabal walked in with it. Look, control. Shut up. Style appalling. Patently a fabrication from beginning to end. Just could be the real thing. Well, if it's genuine, it's gold dust. But its topicality makes it suspect. Smiley is suspicious, Percy. Where did it come from? What's the access? A new secret source of mine. But how could he possibly have access? He has access to the most sensitive levels of policy making. Hi everyone, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This week is a me pick, a Mike pick. It is 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, directed by Thomas Alfredson. Dan, I was going to go into all my reasons for picking this and, and watching it and then texting you, but you literally have this look on your face like if I don't let you give me your overall take of the movie that you're going to going to defect no i'm I just going to let you go i will not defect i mean the way the podcast works as you probably know if you listen is that we we'd never discuss them until the show so i didn't want to discuss anything now i'm trying to keep my poker face here but let's talk about this movie this is a terrific terrific movie it's a great adaptation of the novel uh, which which i love which which i know that mike knows i love um it doesn't take away anything from the 1979 version or vice versa we'll talk about that maybe in part three but it's so funny mike that we just did an episode on gladiator this movie is the opposite of gladiator and this is the anti-gladiator so when i was thinking about about what i like about this movie so much one thing that occurred to me is it reminded me very much in a certain way of another film that you turned me on to that I'd never seen because of this podcast. Now I had seen Tinker Tailor before, but it reminded me of, and I'm going to surprise you by this. Watching this reminded me of watching Dear Zachary. Really? And why? Because if you're going to recommend this movie to somebody, you had better know who that person is. You can imagine, you know, a lot of first dates were ruined by this movie, right? I mean, you said when we did Key Largo, you said Key Largo was sad. This movie makes Key Largo look like the life of Brian. I mean, it is it is so sad and so full of just, just pain and bummed outedness. And, you know, it's I don't think it's brown or tan enough, maybe some burnt umber in there. Um, but but I just, I absolutely love it. I, I was, I hadn't seen it since it first came out. When you texted me and said, let's, let's do this movie. I said, okay, sure. I watched again and I'm so glad I did. I have more to say about it overall, but what was your overall take on it? I get the urge to watch this movie every year or two. I also like the miniseries, um, you know, where it's not it's not just one film, it's a miniseries. Yeah. And I, I like the novel too, but I really enjoy the way the movie is kind of structured cognitively. You start as an outsider and they teach you to be a spy while you watch it. And so it's 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 essentially cognitive in its structure. It's about what you know and how you know what you know. And, you know, without getting into the philosophical devices in, involved there, which really don't actually pertain to the movie, once you're initiated into this movie, it's it's difficult to get out because all the work of the movie is in your first viewing. And then it's it's pleasurable after that because you've already been taught to think. A hundred percent. I was watching this again and um and Gary Oldman, who of course is great, I don't think he speaks until about 17 minutes in the movie. So before you, you just said like you learn how to be a spy, you know how you learn, you know how you act like a spy? You shut up. Yeah, you shut up and you watch people and you pay attention. And then when you've when you've watched a scene as hard as you can, you watch it again. The way that Smiley listens to those tapes over and over, when he listens to um when he listens to Ricky Tars, everybody in Moscow you know, knows it's all, it's all garbage, but you know, you guys think it's all gold dust that he keeps listening over and over. And when he goes swimming and he's just going back and forth, like you watch a guy think, 
And he doesn't go around emoting what he's thinking. He doesn't give you any, any breadcrumbs or thing or chicken feed as they call it. Um, you just have to watch and pay attention. And I wanted to talk about that if I can, for what makes the movie so great. Let's talk about this moment. You just said the first time you do a ton of work and then every other time you're rewarded more. And I can't wait to see it again because I know I'm going to be re rewarded even further. So there's two ways that rewatching this movie rewards you. One, one fun and one I think more interesting. The first one is there's a great moment where Colin Firth, who of course is, is the mole, plays uh, Bill Hayden. He's walking by and he starts humming the song, Mr. Wu is a window cleaner now. Now, he humming because he was listening, he was privy to the secret conversation where the woman stenographer was writing everything down and she had it on the radio. So he, that's, that's second, that is over in like three seconds. And later you put it together like, oh, he must have been listening because why would he hum on that song, et cetera. But it's easy to miss it. If you miss it, it doesn't destroy your experience of the movie. But the joy of this movie is rewatching it and thinking about what people in the movie are thinking and what a scene meant. And I think that the, the part that is so great about this is the one monologue Gary Oldman has in the movie, right? Remember his one monologue? Remember what it's about? Yeah, it's when he's talking about the moment that he met Carla. Yeah, and he tried to flip him, right? So he says, I had 24 hours, I was tired, but I just wanna, I just wanna read a little bit of what he says. He says, things weren't going well with Anne. I gave him the usual pitch. Come to the West and we can give you a comfortable life. Or you can catch your plane and fly home and be shot. And he says, think of your wife. You have a wife, don't you? I could arrange for her to join you. We have a lot of stock to trade. If you go back, she'll be ostracized. Think of her. Think about how much she, he says, I kept harping on about the damn wife, telling him more about me than dot, 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 right? And, and that percolates in Smiley's mind. And that helps lead him to Bill because Smiley figures out that he gave away his weak spot to Carla, which was his wife. So Carla tells Bill, listen, go after Smiley's wife. And that'll cloud his judgment. I don't care if he has new glasses, like he gets his new glasses in the beginning. Carla says, I don't care if he has his new glasses, that's going to cloud him. Now, you don't have to get that to enjoy the film, but it's like a reward for paying attention. And it's not just a reward like watching a murder mystery again or watching Double Indemnity again and say, ah, oh, now I understand exactly why she's doing these things. Or um, I met witness for the prosecution, why she's acting this way. It's a reward of character. Like you learn more about the people as you rewatch it and the people and the plotting in this movie are so perfectly intertwined that, that it, every time you see it, it's, it's like you learn about them as human beings in addition to the plot. Yeah, there are things that are just infuriatingly brilliant. The most emotional conversation of this movie is not depicted. Right. Which is when Jim, yep. which is when Jim comes to his best friend, says, I'm, I'm going. What do you think? OK, just in case anything happens to me and gives all the details, which, of course, get passed down the line, which is why he's shot. So he pays back his friend Bill in kind. Then, he, of course, he meets the kid named Bill that he's sitting with the whole time until he tells him to, you know, get out of here. I don't want yeah. you coming around here anymore. But that 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 must be the most emotional conversation of the entire movie. But it's it's never on screen. I thought you were going to say for the scene we don't get to see is when Smiley confronts Bill at the end, because as you remember, you see Smiley in the room waiting for waiting for the mold to show up and the camera just pans over to the left and you see Colin Fritz sitting there. You don't get to see that moment where he walks in. You get to see the miniseries in the novel, but you don't get to see it there. That's, that's the scene I thought you were going to talk about. No, I, I thought that was well done, but I thought I think a lot of that is held over for the the scene where it's like the what's going to happen now yeah. scene. And, he you know, he tells him he tells him that he's going to be shipped over and, you know, eventually you have to, you have to pick a side, which is um, it's so wonderfully gross. Bad spy movies make personal motivations, state motivations. And what this movie does so well is it draws light to the fact that state motivations are personal motivations. There's no Russia. 
There's no Moscow. There's no inner party. There's Carla. All right. In part two, we'll talk about our favorite moments. Okay. Welcome back. Dan, I don't know how you could pick just one moment for part two, but do your best. I cheated with the Carla one in part one, but that's okay. It's our podcast. So here's my moment. My moment is when Tom Hardy, like one of the, again, million great performances in this film. My moment is when Tom Hardy's telling the story about Irina, who had the mother of all secrets. And he's, he's on the couch in the flat. He's telling the guys what happened. And remember, he says, I wanted to bring her in. He says, I wanted to bring her in. Now, you do remember, like, if I said to you, why, why is he so insistent on that? Why does he want to bring her in? He's in love with her and he feels that they disrespect him. Yeah, exactly. Right. So first, I'm in love with this girl, but also I'm going to prove my worth to the circus. You know, you guys all look down on me. You all don't like me. I'm just, I'm just your, you know, your gopher or something like that. So he wants the self-respect. He wants the dignity. And as you said earlier in part one, the movie does a great job of putting you in the mind of what it's like to work there. Like what is it like to be involved in the circus? Right. And that reminded me that moment where Ricky says, I want to do it. It reminded me of another movie that we have not done for the podcast, but that I know we both love. We should do someday. It reminded me, I started laughing out loud to myself of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. He wanted to close it. He just wanted to close it. Right. So Jack Lemmon in that movie telling the story to Al Pacino, he's like, it was great. I sat there and I sat there 25 minutes by the electric clock holding that pen. And I said, now is the time. And all that stuff in the movie where he's like, a man is his job. And how the, the guys in the office in Glengarry Glen Ross puff each other up and they want dignity and self-respect. It's the same kind of thing. He wants to close her to feel good about himself. And both movies also have a plot of somebody robbing the office. That's true. I mean, well, uh, but, but the other thing is the thing that I think makes Tinker Taylor so beautiful, that being your moment, is that in any other movie, Tom Hardy would be the secret agent. Correct. Right. right. He's the field guy. Right. He's, right. The, he's the guy who could, he probably does have like a secret pen that turns into a knife to get himself out of a situation. And that's why they look down on him. Yes. And, and now, of course, just to finish this moment, the, the joke of course, I realize, of course, that it is this movie is, of course, completely unlike Glenn Ross, because in that movie, the whole gimmick is they all walk around in this fantasy of your workplace where you can just curse at each other and say whatever's on your mind and not worry about it. But in this one, of course, you don't know what anybody's thinking. You know, everybody's got eight layers of filter and, you know, you don't know you don't know what's happening um, until you watch it several times. Yeah, the, the best part is when um, uh, Benedict Cucumber Patch punches uh, Ricky Tarr in the face and then screams at Smiley. Why didn't you tell me you had him? Why didn't you tell me you had him? And then he goes, oh, in case I got caught at the office. Yeah, right. And and finally he realizes what it's like to calculate at Smiley's level and he's instantly humbled and shuts up. Yeah, the only time you could be honest in the world of this film and the world of the circus is if you're like Bill Hayden at the end when he's in his holding pen because then he has nothing to lose. When he explains why he did what he did, he has nothing to lose. So, But everybody else has some kind of stake in, in, in witchcraft and in what's going on in the day-to-day of the circus that they have to be so careful. So what was your moment? Well, he does have something to lose because my moment happens right after that, which is Jim Prito's revenge. Yeah, he where loses he, his life. He, he, come, he, comes out of the, he comes out of the woods. And to your point, what he's shedding when he's talking to Smiley is years of whatever armor he's built on. What he's trying to do is what you can't do after the first time that you watch and enjoy this movie. He's trying to say, okay, I don't think like that anymore. I am a civilian. And the world of the film, Jim Prido, his old friend, they're not going to let that happen. What he's tried to do in his betrayal is kill Bill Hayden. And they're, 
in a weird way, they're not going to let him do it. That's why Jim has to shoot him and can't let him go. It's it's part revenge, but he's tried to take the person that you think you know that's been built up um, and and put it to rest. And, and And it's not going to be allowed. He's not allowed to go and live a normal life or unthink himself out of the way that they've been taught to think. So there's only one solution. And that's a great detail when, when he gets shot and they both, they both shed a tear, so to speak, you know, a literal tear from, from, from Jim and the, and the, the, where he gets shot from Bill. Well, do you remember what he says to the kid also named Bill who comes into his trailer? The kid he calls the unpaid bill. No. He said, I I've known a lot of bills and they've all been good. He's talking right. about Bill Hayden. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All right. In part three, we'll talk about the ending and our big takeaways. Okay, welcome back. So in part three, we like to talk about our the ending, key takeaways, overall thoughts about the film. Dan, go ahead. I think this movie is a great, great movie to watch as an example of adaptations of a, of a terrific novel. If somebody had never seen this before or never read the book, I would say, read the novel. It's terrific. Then watch the movie because not just because like, oh, I, you know, it's my reward for reading the book. The book's, the book's great and does things that the movie can't do. But the movie does things the book can't do. And the fun of the movie for me, and the thing that I think this movie is so jaw-dropping is about is that you imagine these things. Every time you read a book, you cast it in your head. You talk about who would play certain things. You have certain, and then you watch this and you're like, oh, these people are good. Like, that, like their imagination is really, really terrific. It's remarkable. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's what the circus looks like. Oh, that's what Smiley's room looks like. Oh, that's what the flat looks like. Oh, that's what the machine with the camera on it looks like. Like they've imagined the novel for you in a way that I think is really, really remarkable. Fun fact, the entire plot revolves around her, so to speak. What does Anne look like? You never see her. Never see her. You never see her, which is another great, great touch. You know, you only see the back of her head. You see her in a very, very dim at the thing at the end when she's back at the table. It's something only a movie could do. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and it does those great movie things like when you when they you hear La Mer at the end, and you get to see Smiley get his new suit on. He's going to be in charge of the circus. He gets Anne back, so th- things are going back to normal. But um, let me ask you this: you know, you've seen the the Alec Guinness version as well as so have I, and there's kind of like it's not a contest because I think they're both great. They're both great, but it's kind of funny like what this one can't do, what the longer one can, you know, and vice versa, and the trade offs for each one. Like, what do you make of that? I think that part of what makes this movie charming is representing the late sixties, early seventies on screen in a way, in an, in an atmospheric way that I don't think that an adaptation made in the late sixties, early (laughs) seventies could have, could have done well. Um, And it, a lot of movies try to do this. Uh, You mentioned the color palette earlier, somewhat ironically, um, but they do get it just right and there's there's something about late 60s early 70s britain um you know even even mid 70s early 80s britain that you you couldn't get exactly right well, if, what, if you were swimming in the ocean of it what they get just right i think is our imagination of it now what what that actually looked like you know that's your guess is as good as mine but like our imagination of of great britain in the late 60s early 70s is 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 if you took a crazy. if you took a still from the movie and you asked somebody who hadn't seen it when and where are we they would i think that they would get it yeah. 60 to 70% of the time yeah um the other thing that i think that this movie does much better is dramatizing the divide in the circus there's a great uns- almost unspoken thing that's happened where the old guard at the circus at MI5 have all been part of um royal intelligence in world war 2 and that includes Smiley as like the younger part of the older generation. And then the new guys coming in have not been involved in that at all. 
And that that's why they think that they know better. And there's a generational divide in the office, um, which is tangible, but not directly discussed a lot, but it explains a lot. It explains the old guards loyalty to, to each other. It explains the new guards loyalty to each other. It explains why some of the spies are looked upon as mere politicians, right? Going, going to talk to like Percy going behind everybody's back to talk to the minister directly is, is, is a skip level in a way that if you were in the military, you would not have done because he has no respect for chain of command. And that's why it's, it's seen as, as gross or like, uh, or juvenile in a way he he's violated a code. So the net, the next natural question is what's the code? You know, when um, control has to consider Smiley to be one of the insiders, but not really. Why? Because he's known him. It's not just that he's known him for 30 years. It's that he he knows that he's risked his life for it. And so it doesn't come as cheaply as, you know, m- maybe Percy's been manipulated by the Russians is a much easier explanation. Control being control instead of being referred to as Percy is probably a code name from Royal Intelligence. And I think that that's dramatized so well in a 120 minute movie um, that it would be difficult to replicate, even if you had a miniseries to do it. Yeah, that's that's great because Percy is set up to be the villain. I mean, he's the most obvious choice of who the mole is, right? And and, he, and he's a careerist. He's gonna he wants to go to the minister. Why? Because he wants to be he wants to get in line with the Americans. Like that's his whole thing. So, but of course, the most the law of the most obvious suspect tells us it can't be Percy. You know, it can't be Kieran Hines. He has no he has hardly any lines in the movie. So certainly, you know, you get the sense that that it is a careerist kind of thing, but it's not a good enough explanation for who the mole is. Yeah, it's great that he's a patsy. In the movie, but he's also a patsy in, real, in the in, viewer's yeah. perception of the movie. Right, right. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This is a movie we've just scratched the surface of, wouldn't you say, Mike? I mean, we could do another a whole other episode on this. The only way to know what we're talking about is to watch it. And yeah. I, I urge you, if you don't have time for a mini series and the novel's not your thing, to give this a try. Because once you develop a taste for this, there's a lot of material out there. And it's so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm, on Facebook at 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You can um, email us at 15MinuteFilm at gmail.com. Let us know what to watch. We're very, very excited about the number of downloads we're getting. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See you next time. Through a bathroom window, a lady, he peeps at her. His eyesight's getting better, but his nose is getting flatter. Because Mr. Woo's a window cleaner now. What shall I do? And Mr. Woo's a window cleaner now.